Good morning. Today's Bible reading is from 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 1 to 11, and then verse 20 to 49. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damon between Soko and Azekar. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another, with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span, or about three metres. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armour of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels, or 58 kilograms. On his legs he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and his iron point weighed 600 shekels, or 6.9 kilograms. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistines said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now we'll jump to verse 20 to 49. Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out, as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines, facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, Do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his... Oh, sorry. His daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's older brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave these few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done, said David? Can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter, and the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. 
You're only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armour on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around, but he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with the sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those who gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, but the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all you all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. This is the word of the Lord. There you go. Well, let's pray before we start. Father, we thank you this morning. First of all, we thank you for the celebration of the birth of your son, the Saviour. And as we come to this new year, we just thank you also for every morning and every day in this new year. We pray this morning as we unpack your scripture, your holy word, that, uh, that your word speaks, that I get out of the way and let your truth speak and that your truth, which is so rich, Change our hearts and change our minds. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Now, if you've grown up in church, many of us have. Many of us, uh, I, uh, I started going to church when I was 17 years old, so I was well-developed as a young man. Uh, didn't know much about church, but uh, went to youth group and young adult. And uh, many of us have heard this story. If you've been in children's church, if you've been in uh, uh, youth group or young adult ministry or anything like that, you would have had uh, some familiarity with this, with this passage. The story is so famous that even many non-church folk would actually know this story. 
many of them who would consider themselves atheists would, would actually be familiar in most cases with the great story of David and Goliath. It's been, uh, it's been uh, put into cinema and movies. I think um, Richard Gere played David, believe it or not, um, at uh, one stage in his career. So it is immortalised in the silver screen as well. And growing up in youth and young adult ministry, this is generally how the story went. Just like David, you have been put on the shelf, waiting for your opportunity. But God is training you in the times where you feel you are not seen. He has been training you in the small battles against your bears and lions for a moment where you can defeat your Goliath. Your Goliath could be finances or fear or a troubled marriage or your sickness or your destiny. How can you defeat your Goliath? If you have faith in God, you can conquer your giants. God has given you strategies to defeat your Goliath. The stones David used, God has given you uh, these stones, and they could represent prayer, fasting, giving, faith, obedience, and these things you used are refined and smooth for battle in those hard times of your life. Don't rely on how others would do it or what others say. And once you defeat your Goliath, your giant, you will have the spores of victory and bless others around you because of it. And that's a, that's a pretty familiar narrative when it comes to David and Goliath, isn't it? I am, the, I am David, the champion of my own story. So in other words, the story we have heard so much can be summarised like this. David trusted God and defeats his enemy. He was a hero, and you can be a hero like David and defeat your enemies. Just need to ask a few questions here. Is this why the passage is in Scripture? As an allegory for my hard times and the things I am believing for. Is this why the passage is in Scripture? And the bigger question is, why am I David in this story? Does the Bible tell me that I'm David? Why is it that we are always portrayed as the hero throughout Scripture? So as we zoom out of this story and, and look at Scripture as a whole, is the Bible about us? Is that why Scripture is there? Do we look at Scripture as a library of heroes for us to imitate? Or is there a, something bigger that Scripture tells us? Now, your Scripture is often referred to as the autobiography of God. God as the author and God as the centre. So who is the main hero and character of Scripture? Let's look at the words of Jesus on the road to Emmaus. Um, normally I'll get you to ref, you know, turn, look at the screen behind me, but uh, <laughs> you're just going to have to trust me that it says this, guys. Or if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke 24, 44 to 47. The Scripture says this. It says, He said to them, This is what I told you when I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You see, church, scripture is the story of only one champion. Like the roads of the ancient world led to Rome, all of the roads lead to Rome, all scriptures signposts point to Christ. So when we look at this story, do we see David and Goliath 
and the battle of the ages as an allegory for our lives? Or is there something deeper and richer that we should see? Now, the term allegory, it's a, it's a bit of a, a, I guess, a common phrase, but sometimes a little bit misunderstood. But allegory really is a story which characterises or happen or, or things uh, or happens, uh, what's happening in the story that represents other ideas, events or people. The purpose of allegory is used to express an abstract idea or spiritual truth through a drawn-out metaphor so the truth is really easier to understand. So allegory can be good. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, some allegories could be the lion which, uh, the, the witch, the, no, what is it? The lion witch in the wardrobe, you know, the lion representing Aslan, the, the witch Satan in the wardrobe represents um, the closet of our lives. <laughs> that wardrobe, that sneaky wardrobe. Um, but uh, it becomes distorted, however, and harmful sometimes when we, we use the God's breathed words of Scripture themselves as an allegory for our lives. This is when we use something taken out of its immediate context or intent and read in a current situation to bring application that is really foreign and not meant to be there in the text. So instead of marvelling at the rich words of Scripture, we exchange it for something very temporary and something very trivial. So you may have heard the story of David and Goliath in this way or similar as an allegory for your life. If you have, or even if you have not, I pray that our hearts and our minds will be open this morning so we can go back and really, truly find out who the real hero is. And let's draw some real conclusions and so we can truly love and cherish this passage. So let's look at the shepherd and the Messiah King. We find early on in this passage that David was tending his father's sheep in Bethlehem. Let's read verses 12 to 15 again. It says, Now David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time he was very old. Jesse's three older sons had followed Saul to war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second Abinadad, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul. And David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep in Bethlehem. To truly understand and grasp who David is, we must jump back a little bit. We must go back briefly and just set a bit, a bit of this context of the story. You see, King Saul was the people's king. He was the type of king the people wanted. He was rejected by God, though. His heart was arrogant. He was unrepentant and he was disobedient. So God chose a new king, one after his own heart and sends Samuel to anoint the shepherd boy, one that doesn't look like Israel's idea that a king should be. So the previous chapter, in chapter 16, verse 10 to 13, it reads this. It says, Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these the sons, you all the sons that you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had brought him in. He was glowing with health and of fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of the brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. And then Samuel went back to Ramah. So here we see the prophet Samuel anoint David as future king. The Hebrew word here is the verb mashak, which means to anoint. This is the root word for mashiach, 
which means Messiah, the anointed one. David is portrayed as the messianic future king of Israel, but he's caring for his father's sheep. He doesn't look like a king in the Israel's eyes at all. But in David here, we see a shadow of Christ, a type and shadow of, of Christ, who is the realisation and the true Messiah, the true shepherd king. This is known as a type and shadow. And that's a passage in the scripture that really just points us to Christ, the real reason why it's there. So just as David didn't fit the mould of a king in the eyes of not even his family, when Christ is born, Israel was waiting for their Messiah, their Mashiach. But they were looking for a military leader, a mighty Messiah to save them and free them from the hands of Rome. Jesus, the Messiah, did not fit their expectation at all. So as we go back to the story here and it progresses, we see David move from shepherding his father's sheep to shepherding the father's sheep, the people of Israel. What does David do as a shepherd? Well, let's go back to the text in in chapter 17, verses 34 to 37. David says to Saul here, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off the sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by the hair, struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. As we read this magnificent story of David and Goliath, we must recognise who David is. He is the anointed one of God chosen to rescue and rule his people, the shadow of the true Messiah. David is a shepherd, and a shepherd protects his father's sheep. He cares for them. He lays down his life for the sheep. He rescues them from the bear and the lion. A shepherd is not passive in caring for the sheep. Christ is our true shepherd, church. He guards us. He cares for us. He protects us from wolves. Christ is not passive in saving his people. See, the people of Israel are without a true shepherd. You know, Saul should be there to protect the people and step up and face that giant. But where Saul isn't, he looks for another. I just want to read you a little bit of a story of an expert, excerpt. Something from 1946, May 21st. Set the scene, the place, Los Alamos. A young and daring scientist was carrying out a, needy, a necessary experiment in preparation for the atomic test to be conducted in the waters of the South Pacific. He has successfully performed such an experiment many times before. In his effort to determine how the amount of U-235 U- necessary for a chain reaction, scientists call it the critical mass. He would push two hemispheres of uranium together Then just as the mass becomes critical, he would push them apart with his screwdriver, thus instantly stopping the chain reaction. But that day, just as the material became critical, the screwdriver slipped. The hemispheres of uranium came too close together. Instantly, the room was filled with a dazzling bluish haze. Young Louis Slotten, instead of ducking and thereby possibly saving himself, tore the two hemispheres apart with his hands and thus interrupting the chain reaction. By this instant, self-forgetting, daring, he saved the lives of seven other persons in the room. As as he waited for the car that was to take him to hospital, 
he, was, he said quietly to his companion, you'll come through all right, but I haven't the faintest chance myself. It was only too true. Nine days later, he died. Nineteen centuries ago, the son of the living God walked directly into the sin's most concentrated radiation, allowed himself to be touched by its curse and let it take his life. By that act, he broke the chain reaction. He broke the power of sin. He was our substitute. The radiation didn't affect us at all. To death. He came, so let's we go back to the story. Saul looks for somebody else. Who does he find? A champion? A military man? No, he hears reports of a shepherd boy who has offered, who was offended at the thought that someone could defy the living God. He calls for David, and David takes on this role. He chooses the fight. Let's read back to 30, verse 32. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Don't lose heart. Don't be afraid. Your servant will go and fight. Can you imagine the absurdity of this statement? A young boy, not a man of war, saying to the king of Israel to not lose heart. The king of Israel. Don't lose heart. I'll go fight the guy. The hearts of Israel for 40 days have been absolutely failing them. They are trembling. No hope. No way out. Who should be there to represent Israel to fight this battle? King Saul's in the tent, not in the trench. And the only one willing, not just willing, but running to the battle is young, ruddy David, ready to fight a giant that the king would not even dare to. David says to the king of Israel, hopeless, without a chance, says it to all Israel, effectively, I will stand in the gap. I will be your substitute. Don't be afraid, David says. And why? I will fight. A substitute that takes on the fight bears the task, one, of the, one that even the cowering king and the armies of Israel would not bear to take themselves. David is the representative of the entirety of God's people. It becomes his task. He fights for all, and all will suffer slavery if he loses. It's a big cost, but all will share in the spoils of victory if he succeeds. Let's read down to, 40, to verse 45 and 47 of our text. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, and I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give, I will give the carcasses of the Philistines' army to the, the birds of the air and the wild animals. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword, it is not by might the spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Why is Sir David so confident, this young man, this young ruddy man? Well, he's confident because he's anointed by God. The odds are clearly stacked against him, though. But David knew he was the anointed king. He knew his God and that God would rescue him because God's, God saved him from the lion and the bear. God did that. David, David's might didn't fight the bear and the lion. Just imagine a little guy you know, tackling this lion and this bear. No, God did that. That was a miracle from God, just like it's a miracle with Goliath. So David knew his God. He was anointed by God. 
Last week we celebrated the birth of, of Jesus. One of the greatest verses that tell us about this coming Saviour is in Matthew 1.21. It says, She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. As absurd as David's request was that he could defeat a giant, what an even more absurd thought is that someone can save us from our sins that sin and death can be defeated. But Jesus is the anointed one. He's the Messiah, who is the only one that has the power to save his people from their sins. You see, church, when we look at this story, and it represents the true shepherd king who rescues his sheep, sheep that would not stand a chance on their own, this rich story now has some good true meaning. This is the gospel. As sinners... We have every right to fear death, the effects of sin and the great enemy that has held us captive our whole lives. But we have a great substitute that says to us, do not be afraid. And why? Because I will fight. Because he will fight. This is a rep- this is repeated message. It's a very repeated message throughout scripture. Like a giant neon sign and it points to Christ. In Exodus 14, 13 to 14, Moses tells the people of Israel, Moses answers the people, do not be afraid, stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring to you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. Just as Moses mediated for God's people before Pharaoh, who had held God's people captive and enslaved, so David turns, steps up with the same message, do not be afraid, do not lose heart, the victory is the Lord's. But victory doesn't come the way we think. It's not with a sword and a spear, not by natural means. It was the blood of the Passover lamb that freed God's people in Egypt, the lamb's life instead of the firstborn. As we look back before David to Moses, now let's look ahead at the birth of our Saviour. This birth we have celebrated. Here we find the culmination of why God's people should not be afraid. Luke 2, 10 to 11 says, But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I will, I will bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today the town of, in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. So Moses tells the people, don't be afraid. God will deliver his people. David tells God's people, do not be afraid. God will deliver his people. And we have an angel. Do not be afraid. A saviour has been born. God will deliver his people. Praise God, church. God delivers his people. Humanity's sin has held Adam and his offspring captive in its grasp ever since the garden. Just like the people of Israel here on the sidelines of battle, they would not, could not dare to fight. They have not rectified, for, they have no rectification for, sorry, for their sorry state. So instead, they do nothing. Let's wait it out. Let's hope the problem just goes away. Let's hope Goliath gets a bit tired and walks away. They and us are slaves to sin. No way to defeat this foe. Death, the wages for the crime we all commit. But we have the king that stands in the gap for his people. One who has defeated sin and death once and for all. Charles Haddon Spurgeon writes, Christ must bring a sacrifice but observe what it is he offered himself he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself his whole self 
Christ did not give us merely a part of himself. He gave himself. Let me say that, those sweet words again. He loved me and gave himself for me. His blood. Yes, his hands, his feet, his side. Yes, his whole body, his soul. Yes, but you need to not to say all of that. He gave himself. Who, who his own self bore the sins in his own body on the tree. Whatever Christ was in himself, he gave that. He offered himself as a sacrifice for sin. What a wonderful sacrifice. 10,000 bullocks, myriads of sheep, enough to cover the pastures of the earth. What would, be, what would their blood avail? But God, God incarnate, Emmanuel, God with us, offers himself. What condensation? What love? Condensation. <laughs> Condescension. There it is. What love. What infinite pity that, we, that he should sacrifice himself for his enemies, for those who have broken his holy law. You see, Christ did not, save, did not save and deliver us so we can defeat our giants. That's not the reason why Jesus died, that we can defeat my finances or my giants. Christ defeated sin to reconcile us back to God. His enemies. He defeats the, the greatest of enemies, the devil and sin itself. He has already won that victory. Israel could only chase off the Philistines because they were already defeated. They were running. We, could only, we can only have the victory over sin today because sin has ultimately been defeated on the cross. And as, as magnificent... The victory of David defeating the giant is even more magnificent is the victory that defeats sin and death and crushes Satan just as David crushes the giant. So the Messiah King is victorious. And what a giant Goliath was. Can you imagine the sheer size of this giant? The nine feet nine or tall, just a huge, just as big as the ceiling. He's taunted with disdain. God's people, hatred for the people of Israel. Twice a day for 40 days, the Israelites, fearful, without a hope, on the sidelines of battle. You know, I reckon that sounds more like us, doesn't it? I reckon. If we were to ever see ourselves in a story, surely we are those that cower under the weight of fear. I know I would be. Without a hope, without a fight, unable to win a battle, Goliath casting such a huge shadow over their fading hearts. When we read the, the description of Goliath, we don't just see a massive size, but an, such an impenetrable, impenetrable armour. Verses 5 to 7 reads, He had bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armour of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs he wore bronze greaves and bronze javelin was slung on his back. He was impenetrable. But there is more to the description than what we see on the surface. Just as there are people in the Old Testament that point us to Christ, there are many enemies of God's people and that are shadows of those who oppose God, even Satan himself. Verse 5 tells us that Goliath wore a coat of scale. He, the Hebrew word is kastasen, meaning scales, and is used in Ezekiel 29 to describe Pharaoh the dragon, the picture of that ugly serpent, Satan. I pronounced that wrong, but it's, it's, you get the picture. 
The Greek word that replaces that is dracoon. Um, and that is repeated so many times in Revelation to describe the dragon. So just like David represents Christ here, Goliath represents Satan. And how does David defeat Goliath? Well, let's read from verse 48. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag, he takes out a stone. He slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into the forehead and his face fell down on the ground. So David ran uh, so David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took, off the Philist he took the Philistine's sword and drew it from its sheath. And after he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. God doesn't need powerful weapons to win the battle. The battle is the Lord's. So David crushes the head of the enemy of God's armies with the slingshot. David is the head crusher. But to understand how significant this is, we need to go back to the start. In Genesis 3, verses 14 and 15. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. All allegories, all comparisons fail dismally when we see the true picture of the shepherd king from Bethlehem crushing the serpent's head. When, we defeat, when he defeats sin and death on that cross to destroy the works of the devil, Christ is the head crusher. No other picture is needed. The story is not about overcoming our fears with faith. David showed no fear, but trusting God to deliver his people. We have a faithful and true deliverer church, one that will deliver us from this sinful life into life forevermore with our Saviour. So in our pain, in our sin, in the things we struggle with, these genuine things, in our need for a deliverance, we see this story that God has provided a deliverer for his people. A shepherd for his flock, a substitute to stand in the gap and has provided the ultimate victory over sin and death and that ugly serpent. But we get to share in the victory, don't we? Just like Israel did. When the Philistines saw their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Just imagine that. The, 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 for 40 days, twice a day, they were pretty confident. They were pretty darn confident, the Philistines, thinking we've got this guy. We recruited the number one draft in Goliath, and he is the guy that's going to bring victory. And then just imagine hearing, that. they probably weren't even looking, they were probably cash, and suddenly they hear the big nine-foot person thud on the ground, and they looked and they would have been scared. And then God's armies run towards them and they flee. They absolutely flee. The men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the Sarum road to Gath and Ekron. When the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they had plundered their camp. 
God's people get to share in the spoils of the shepherd king's victory. There is another battle coming, one to end all battles. And it is not the spores of wealth and riches, it is the spores of life forevermore with our king. God's people sharing in the victory that the king won. A deliverance of God's people once and for all. We don't have to struggle with sin forever. There'll be a day where we share in that victory that we, in a twinkling of an eye, will see Christ and we will be like him. And we will share in that victory forevermore, living God living with his people. What a day that we cannot wait for. God is faithful to deliver his people and he has the power to save us from our sins. But our trust is not in ourselves, but it is in God who saves us from our sins and brings the ultimate victory to our life. Don't trust ourselves. We are not David. Let's not trust in our own might and power. Let's not trust in ourselves. It is God who delivers us, not ourselves. Praise be to God that I am not David, that my salvation is not found in my ability to fight and to find faith, but it is in Christ, the true David, who gives me the precious gift of faith to trust him and to fight on my behalf. This passage of scripture spills out of the pages to show Christ in all its brilliance. All we can do is drink it up and let it fill us with awe. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you sent your son, the shepherd king of your people, and you crushed the devil's head. Thank you that it is not up to us to have more faith, to have more ability, to have more, if we only had more faith, if we only had more. Thank you that we don't need to strive and struggle, that we can rest in the victory that you have won. Thank you, Jesus, that you love us and you died for us and that you win the victory, that the battle is yours. We just pray today, help us to realise that, help us to rest and to trust that even though through our life and through our daily struggles that are real, that the ultimate victory comes in you and that we can look to that glorious day that we will see you face to face. Amen. Amen.